This is the Policy Options Podcast. I'm Julie Pichel. Intergovernmental relations have been a hot topic as of late, with some provinces taking the feds to court over carbon pricing and others using the notwithstanding clause to push forward their political agendas. But these stories are big ticket items with a few key political players. If we want to know how people all across the provinces and territories feel about the Federation, we're often out of luck. Which is why the Confederation of Tomorrow is such an interesting project. It's a massive survey of public opinion, asking people from all parts of Canada how they feel our Federation is working. It was undertaken as a joint effort of the Environics Institute for Survey Research, the sadly now closed MOA Center, the Canada West Foundation, the Centre d'Analyse Politique sur la Constitution et le Federalisme at UCAM, the Brian Mulroney Institute of Government at St. FX University, and us, the IRPP. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Andrew Parkin, one of the masterminds behind the project. He's the executive director of Environics and former director of the Moet Center, with a lengthy career researching and advising on policy before that. We discuss the findings of the survey and their implications for where we are and where we're headed as a federation. Just a procedural note, the first part of this week's podcast is in English, and it's about the survey more generally. Just before the 25-minute mark, my colleague Ricardo Montrose takes over to understand the mood in Quebec. If you'd like to listen in French, you can start from there. Now, here's Andrew Parkin. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we're here to talk about the Confederation of Tomorrow. Who is behind the project and why this survey at this time? The project came out of an event that I was involved in in 2017, and that was the 50th anniversary of the original Confederation of Tomorrow conference that was held in 1967. And it was a conference convened by John Robarts, the Premier of Ontario at the time, with all of the other provincial premiers across the country. And one of the things that caught my eye about that event that appealed to me was that it was a conference that that didn't have a predetermined outcome. It wasn't designed to produce a new accord on anything, a declaration, a manifesto, a common position. It was a conference designed to support dialogue. Basically, Robarts' starting premise is this country is changing fast. We don't all know what's happening in each of the different parts of the country. And we're not going to be able to solve any of the problems that we're facing if we don't understand each other better. And we're not going to understand each other better if we don't have a time to talk to each other. So that was the impetus for him convening that conference. You know, everyone at work always says, I don't want to go to a meeting just for the sake of having a meeting. And that can work in an office environment, but I don't think that works in Canada in terms of making this country as a whole work. Sometimes we need to talk to each other and we need to listen to each other just for the sake of doing that before we really know where that's going to take us. So that sort of idea that it never hurts to understand each other better, that led us both to mark the 50th anniversary in 2017, but more practically, get back to some of this public opinion research that different researchers in Canada used to do quite extensively, obviously at the time of the big unity kind of events or crises around the Quebec referendums and Charlottetown and Meech and so on. But in more recent years, kind of 
fell out of use. People thought Quebec is not about to separate, so we don't need to ask anybody any questions about how the country is working. So we wanted to get back to public opinion research about the Federation with that same, I think, idea in mind that we don't necessarily have an objective that we think this is going to lead to, you know, a concrete policy outcome on one issue or the other. But we sure as heck think it's better for us all to understand each other better because it continues to be a complex, diverse country that's changing quickly. The survey findings are being published in three reports, one still forthcoming. The first report, Canada, Pulling Together or Drifting Apart, looks at how Canadians see their place in the Federation, both as individuals and as citizens of provinces or territories. What's the mood across the country right now? In different parts of the country, it's not necessarily good. So one way to put it is we got the bad news out of the way in the first report. But it's not uniform, and that's one of the key themes we need to keep coming back to. I think the first finding that jumps out and that we wanted to emphasize is is when the premiers in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan point out that people in their provinces really are not happy with how the Federation is working and with how their province is treated in the Federation, they are not exaggerating. They're not making it up. They are capturing the public mood in those provinces. So to be specific, on a number of questions about how the province is treated, the answers in Alberta and Saskatchewan, particularly in Alberta, are not positive. And they're not just not positive. They've never been as negative as they are now. So I don't really want to talk about Western alienation, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. But in terms of these measures of alienation, it's higher now in those provinces than it has been. So if you ask how is the mood across the country, certainly in that part of Canada, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, the mood is negative and has grown more negative in recent years. Mm-hmm. So Alberta and Saskatchewan are seemingly the most vocal in their discontent with the Federation. Could you go over how some of the other provinces and territories are feeling about the Federation? Sure. And and I think that's an important point because, you know, in the last couple of years, Alberta and to a certain extent Saskatchewan have been the focus of this discussion. But Newfoundland is just as dissatisfied and has traditionally been just as dissatisfied and nothing has, has changed there. And Nova Scotia, to a lesser extent than Newfoundland, but still to an important extent, I think would follow those other provinces. And then, as you mentioned, the North factors in as well. And that's one of the interesting things that I saw. One of the most discontent jurisdictions that you could see right now is the Northwest Territories. And we often don't see the territories in national studies. We certainly don't see them pulled out individually. So Alberta and Saskatchewan are getting frustrated to the point where they're starting to question federalism itself. I don't want to exaggerate that to the extent of sort of talking about separation necessarily, but they're really seeing it as as a more systemic problem, where I think maybe Northwest Territories, Nova Scotia, and so on, are more just focused that right now they don't feel that they're getting the results that they need, but they're not going as far as questioning you know, whether federalism itself is a good way to form or run the country. So there's some, definitely some nuances in there. But just to jump back to what we were talking about just a few seconds ago, I think part of the important message and, and one of the key findings of the study that jumped out to me right away is how this doesn't break down by what we normally think of as a region in the country, the West or the prairies or the Atlantic or the North or even you know central Canada to a certain extent. The jurisdictions just don't cluster together. So on a lot of these measures, you'll find Atlantic jurisdictions 
on the most frustrated end of the scale and the least frustrated end of the scale. And the same with the West and the North. And I think that tells us something. It, it tells us that the country is growing even more complex. It's a hard enough picture to keep four or five, six regions in mind. But I think we're getting to the point where we have to start really seriously keeping 13 different jurisdictions in mind, that the circumstances differ not just by region, but, but by jurisdiction. And one of the really interesting trends that we can see to illustrate that point is how different British Columbia and Alberta have become. If you go back to the sort of early 2000s, BC and Alberta were kind of hugging each other as neighbors, not just geographic neighbors, but as sharing the perspective on what you could call Western alienation. And since that time, they've really become decoupled. And British Columbia has become progressively more satisfied as Alberta has become progressively less satisfied. And if you look at the politics of it, it makes perfect sense. You know, in terms of building pipelines, Albertans are as annoyed right now with the government of British Columbia as they are probably with the government in Ottawa. These concepts like Western alienation, it means that I think they're not really that useful. And that's why I said earlier, I don't really like the term Western alienation. I think it paints over as much as it illustrates. If you use that term, it suggests that this is something we've seen before. It's all familiar. We go through this every sort of 10 or 20 years, and there's nothing new here. If you take that position, I think you really miss the details of what's going on in Alberta, in Fort McMurray, in Calgary, the, the nature of that economy and you know how the changing circumstances of resource production in that province have ricocheted out. So I, I think it's, it's sort of time to be more precise. Not only does this first report look at a province or territory's place within the Federation, but how individual Canadians within that province or territory are identifying and how that's changed over time. Can you elaborate on some of the changes on that front? Sure. I think there's, there's really two different sides to the story. If you look at changes over time, it does seem that provincial identities and to a certain extent other identities, ethnic identities, even gender identity, are all becoming stronger over time. And the national identity in Canada is very strong, but it's not becoming stronger over time. So the other identities, in a way, are, are catching up. But I don't think we could take this for granted. You know, at a time of globalization, Canada is 150 years old and so on, you could imagine a situation where the national identity would, would kind of keep growing stronger and stronger and these historic, regional or provincial-based ones would kind of drift away. And that is absolutely not what's happening. So other identities are strengthening, but it's not a zero-sum game. And that's a really important part of this. To strengthen your identity of being from Newfoundland or being from the North or being Indigenous or having parents who come from outside the country, none of those by themselves necessarily weaken anything else. Canada has always been and continues to be a country with overlapping and coexisting identities. It's just interesting to see that many of these non-national identities have been strengthening over time. The first report ends with this question, are we pulling together or are we drifting apart? And the results it gives are mixed. How then should we make sense of where we're headed as a country? Yeah, and, and we deliberately were trying to cover both sides at the same time because I don't think that the survey points clearly in one direction or the other. There are lots of, uh, I guess, reassuring findings, the one you mentioned, 
you know, Canadians continue to have confidence that they can overcome their differences. To get back to the identity point we were talking about, most Canadians will agree that they share values with people from across the country, regardless of where they live. If you put it to Canadians that they have more in common with their neighbors across the southern border in a U.S. state than they do with Canadians across the country, across the continent, they would disagree with that. But at the same time, you know, we've seen all these findings that the measures of frustration with the mechanics or the fairness of the Federation in some provinces are higher than ever. And a point that we didn't touch on, but I can just mention briefly, is that Quebecers have become, let's say, no more enamored with federalism as a concept over the last 15 years than they were. So their sovereignty is not a key issue in Quebec right now, but that shouldn't be mistaken for people having warmed to the federalist side. It's much more of a shelving of a debate than a, than a resolution of a debate. And so I think we have to take the negative or the less encouraging findings really seriously. That from all of this historic tracking that we can do, there's lots of reasons to think that we've never been in worse shape in some ways. But that doesn't mean that the country is going to come crashing apart. I'm flipping back to the other point. You do have this underlying glue. You have shared values. You have shared identity. You have a willingness to work problems out together. So both of these things are true at the same time. And as long as we take these kind of warning signs seriously and respond to it, then we should be okay. It's just the question that hangs out is, well, what if we don't? So I think that's a great transition to this next report. If the first report is about identity The second report, entitled Making Federalism Work, delves into more practical concerns of how the Federation is organized. When Canadians take a step back and look at the architecture of the Federation itself, how do we feel about it? The theme that came out for me is is one of cooperation or collaboration, I guess, over a kind of unilateralism. As an example of that, if you ask Canadians, which level of government do they want to tackle certain problems? The most likely response you get on most issues is both, both the federal and provincial government. And obviously, there's a sort of natural tendency. I mean, why why not say both? But I think it's still important to dwell on this, because you could imagine the situation where Canadians are just sort of giving up on the notion of, of federalism as functioning, right? So they're sort of saying, look, I've got to pick a winner here, right? Only one government is really going to work for me. And I have no faith at all in the other one. But that's not really the theme that comes out on this. Canadians think the solution to a lot of these problems is not to turn their back on each other and not to kind of walk away from the table, but to continue to bring everyone together to try and find a, a way forward. We can be more precise because we actually ask specifically, what kind of approach do you want your own provincial or territorial government to take to solving these kinds of issues? Do you think that it should fight exclusively for provincial interest, even if that means you know pushing for a policy that might be harmful to the interests of another part of Canada? Or do you want to find a balance between your own provincial interest and a, a larger national interest? And most Canadians will want to find that balance. In this report, you point out that Canada is the most decentralized federation in the developed world. And a lot of Canadians want to see an even greater shift of powers away from the federal government. And yet, 
a majority of Canadians are still in support of the equalization program and a whole host of other national measures. What are some of the implications of this? It's a good question when you phrase it like that. And I think the answer I have to give is, interestingly enough, I think Canadians are really federalist. I think that first point that, that you made is, is worth dwelling on, the idea that we do live in by far the most decentralized federation in the developed world. And yet Canadians are not uncomfortable with this. Now, most people are just satisfied. They say we don't need to change the division of powers at all. But there's more who would actually want to see it, as you said, more decentralized than who, who want transfer of powers back to Ottawa. I think for the policy community, this is really an, an important point because it often comes up in policy discussions that one advocate or researcher or organization will get to the point of frustration, right? They just want to fix a problem and they see the most powerful government being in Ottawa. And so they would like the federal government just to deal with the problem and sort of interjections that it may not be their jurisdiction or they have to get the provinces are on board are sometimes met with this roll of the eyes, like, well, that will be complicated and probably won't work and will take forever and so on. And my point here is it's important to focus on the public opinion data because it reminds us that this sort of reality that we have, it didn't just fall from the sky and it's not sort of imposed on us. It's a reflection of who we are. And if you ask Canadians about it, they don't want a different kind of system. But the, the second point when I said, you know, what does this tell us? Again, I I think it says Canadians are federalists. And in some ways, that means that they do see some issues where they're more likely, a little bit more likely to turn to their provincial government. That's certainly the case in Quebec on a number of issues around health, immigration, even pharmacare, but not in this sort of exclusive, I don't care what you think, I am only taking care of myself. Not in that sense, but in the sense that there's a real division of powers and we've got two levels of government. Some of them are good at doing some things. Some of them are good at doing other things. And on really big problems, we're going to need them to work together. Up until now, we've been talking about the reports more generally, but their findings can also be used to shed light on some specific political questions. I'm thinking here of the piece you recently wrote in Policy Options on how, despite the pressures of decentralization, we actually see pretty weak support for a province-first approach to climate change. But you present Canadians' attitudes towards the issue as quite nuanced. Again, this sort of complexity piece is coming up. How do we make sense of the complex findings when it comes to an issue like this? So I think we start by describing it. And I'm not sure how we can make sense of it except by embracing it, right? We ha- I think we have to embrace our complexity. So just to go through the different steps of it as you kind of laid them out, Canadians are not looking to push power from the provinces back to Ottawa. And if you look at some things like energy, particularly in energy-producing provinces, energy is, is definitely seen as something that they can rely on their provincial government to take care of, and they're not really looking to change that either. So we're going into discussions about climate change, which invariably have to do with how we're producing and consuming energy, among other things. And you think that the deck is stacked against Ottawa, and yet there are more Canadians who who would like a single national approach to a climate change strategy than who want the provinces to take the lead. And there are very few Canadians who trust their province more on the issue of climate change. And that doesn't really vary you know, depending on whether you're in a province that's kind of on board with the pan-Canadian strategy that's in place right now or not. So 
with slight exception of Saskatchewan, which is a little bit more skeptical. So on an issue like climate change, it almost becomes an exception where regardless of how you see the normal roles of the normal federal provincial division of powers, that people are appreciating the need for the federal government taking action. And the finding that, that jumped out the most, of course, is that the two provinces that are most supportive of the idea of uh, having one national approach to climate change that applies to all provinces are British Columbia and Quebec, which are two provinces that, that don't get covered by the federal carbon tax right now because they have their own policies. But it, I think you read that as them, them saying either they appreciate the flexibility that's part of the, the federal strategy right now, or they're saying that they don't really want a free rider. But to try and answer your question, how do we make, make sense of that? I come back to more just a, of acceptance. You're not going to get a straight answer across the board on every question. So Canadians will feel differently about an issue like climate change than they will on something like pharmacare. And it comes back to one of the questions that comes up a lot when you do surveys around federalism, which when you get into the details of the division of powers, you know, can get kind of technocratic sometimes. How can Canadians answer survey questions on the division of powers or how governments work together when they may not know a lot of the details about that anyway? I mean, how much do Canadians know about how federalism works, how transfers work, how equalization works? So what are you really getting when you do studies of public opinion? And I understand that question. I think it's a, a fair question. But when you look at the answers and you look at, at how nuanced the answers are and how there's exceptions and how Canadians are look to me like they're giving thoughtful answers that I, I think you can get some reassurance out of the whole process. Canadians don't need to be political scientists in order to be able to pronounce on what they want from their governments on these issues. We discussed several aspects of Confederation of Tomorrow. Now, as we're coming into a federal election, what is the main takeaway you see for voters and also for politicians and policymakers leading up to this campaign? I think we have to go back to some of the first themes that we talked about, that despite the willingness of Canadians, I think, to come together, despite what they're telling us in terms of feeling that they have shared values, that the differences across the country are real. And in the election campaign, I think we have to give our political parties and political leaders the leeway to respond to those differences. I think we're in an age where people are sometimes looking for really simple answers to some questions, and that's going to be hard in Canada. So I, I think what Canadians are telling us in the survey, if you want to sort of really take a step back and just forget about all the individual questions and numbers and sort of close your eyes and think, what am I hearing? I'm hearing a lot of diversity and a lot of willingness to work together. And so on an election campaign, I, I think it's important not to punish politicians for trying to respond to that diversity, for trying to develop policies that may resonate more in one place and then not penalize them by saying, well, why are you just talking about the resource economy when I have a different kind of economy? Why are you talking about one type of transfer when I need the other type of transfer? So let's not turn this need to respond to 13 different jurisdictions and 13 different realities into a kind of gotcha scenario where parties and politicians are, as I said, penalized for trying to take those differences seriously. We have to, I think, be prepared to have an election discussion 
that has a lot of room for, as I said, nuances and exceptions and not see that as a weakness instead of a strength. And that gets back to the very first point that we'd started this conversation with, which is, you know, what was the vision of Confederation of Tomorrow? It was a vision of a strong country, but one where we're going to have different stories and different things to say, and, and we have to listen to that. And maybe it's kind of naive and optimistic to think that an election campaign is going to be a good moment for listening, right, instead of shouting or pronouncing or campaigning. But we need to push ourselves to do that. Now, here's Ricardo Montrose with a closer look at the mood in Quebec. Alors, Monsieur Parkin, merci d'être avec nous aujourd'hui. Vous avez parlé avec ma collègue Julia de vos deux rapports sur votre enquête de façon générale. Mais moi, j'aimerais plus m'attarder sur la situation québécoise et aussi sur la francophonie et le bilinguisme au Canada. Tout d'abord, j'aimerais vous demander, d'après les résultats de votre enquête, qu'est-ce que pensent les Québécois de leur place dans la Confédération? Le résultat global qui est le plus important, c'est qu'il y a eu très peu de changements depuis les derniers 10, 15, 20 ans. C'était assez frappant parce que si on regarde les résultats des élections, on voit une, un recul vraiment étonnant des partis souverainistes, ça veut dire le Bloc québécois premièrement, mais plus notamment dans les dernières élections provinciales, le Parti québécois. Alors, si on est hors du Québec au moins et on regarde cette situation où on ne voit plus une partie québécoise soit en gouvernement, soit en opposition, on, on peut penser, on peut même rêver d'une situation où, où finalement on a laissé à côté cette débat sur la, la place du Québec au sein du Canada. Mais si on regarde vraiment les opinions des Québécois, il y a eu vraiment très peu de changements. Alors ça veut dire une absence d'un débat accru sur la souveraineté du Québec ne veut pas dire que les Québécois sont soudainement devenus de plus en plus fédéralistes. Alors le, la situation est la même qui était toujours été, que les opinions sont, sont divisées, même si, comme j'ai dit, le débat n'est pas en prominence, on n'est pas devenu plus fédéraliste qu'on était dans le passé. Alors, vous dites que depuis les 20 dernières années, alors depuis le référendum de 95, les opinions n'ont pas tellement changé quant à la place que les Québécois pensent avoir dans la Confédération. Alors, est-ce à dire qu'ils se sentent plus ou moins écoutés? Pas nécessairement. Il y a une Québécoise sur deux qui pense que le, la province ne reçoit pas le respect qu'il mérite au Canada, mais peut-être même plus important, si on demande au Québec est-ce qu'il s'identifie comme fédéraliste ou comme souverainiste, ou est-ce qu'il se voit comme également fédéraliste et souverainiste, ou même ni l'un ni l'autre, là, c'est là encore une fois où on ne voit pas beaucoup de changements. La plupart des Québécois se disent qu'ils sont entre les deux, ni l'un ni l'autre, et il y a juste, je pense que c'est à peu près 20-25% de la population qui dit qu'ils sont principalement ou plutôt fédéralistes. Alors, ce n'est pas beaucoup, c'est même moins parmi les jeunes. Alors, les opinions sont toujours partagées, il n'y a pas un consensus et il n'y a pas beaucoup de changements non plus. D'accord. J'aimerais maintenant transitionner vers un autre sujet. Les résultats de votre sondage révélaient que le Québec et l'Alberta souhaitent tous les deux une plus grande autonomie pour les provinces. Alors, dans un de vos articles publiés dans Options politiques, vous parlez de cette aspiration commune et de la possibilité d'une alliance entre les deux provinces. Est-ce qu'une telle alliance est possible? Et si oui, quelle forme est-ce qu'elle prendrait? 
il y a des positions partagées qui suggèrent une alliance. Comme vous disiez, les, les deux provinces, l'Alberta et le Québec, sont les plus autonomistes, sont les populations les plus enclins à demander un transfert de pouvoir envers les provinces, d'avoir des provinces plus fortes, une fédération plus décentralisée. Et on peut pousser plus loin. Les deux provinces, même s'ils ont une base énergétique très différente, mais ils sont les deux provinces qui sont fiers de leur, leur secteur énergétique et qui veulent protéger les pouvoirs des provinces dans ce domaine. Alors, si on garde le, la conversation juste euh, sur les pouvoirs des provinces, les droits des provinces de gérer leur secteur énergétique, là, il y a, il y a beaucoup de points en commun entre les deux. Et même, on peut dire qu'il y a un certain mécontentement qui est aussi en commun. Des fois, les, les deux provinces sont les plus probables à se dire qu'elles sont maltraitées au sein du Canada. Le problème, c'est que pour le Québec, la solution qui se présente est toujours d'avoir un peu plus d'asymétrie dans la fédération. Ça veut dire que s'il y a une province comme le Québec qui est prête à prendre plus de responsabilités, plus de pouvoir par rapport aux autres provinces, qu'on devrait accepter on a une situation, on peut parler peut-être des régimes de médicaments où on parle beaucoup d'introduire un nouveau programme fédéral pour payer pour les médicaments pour les Canadiens. Mais au Québec, on a déjà un programme en place et je suis sûr que s'il y a un gouvernement fédéral qui présentera un nouveau programme, que le Québec veut dire que nous autres, on est prêts à gérer notre propre programme et on n'a pas besoin d'entrer dans un nouveau programme fédéral. Et, et les autres neuf provinces sont probablement plus prêt à accepter d'avoir euh, ce programme franc-canadien. Alors là, il y a une solution parfaite qui se présente, ça veut dire que le Québec pourrait avoir un arrangement qui est unique. Le problème, c'est que pour les gens dans l'Ouest, cette situation ne se présente pas comme une solution, ça se présente comme une partie du problème à l'origine. Ça veut dire que les accords comme ceci, se présente comme, encore une fois, un gouvernement fédéral qui répond aux besoins du Québec, mais qui continue à laisser à côté les besoins des autres provinces. Alors, c'est une casse-tête, on peut dire, que les Québécois qui sont plus décentralisateurs et moins satisfaits avec la façon dans laquelle la fédération fonctionne, sont plus enclins à accepter des solutions asymétriques. Mais les Albertains qui sont plus décentralisateurs et plus frustrés avec la fédération sont moins prêts à accepter qu'il y a une province qui reçoit plus de pouvoir par rapport aux autres provinces. Et comme j'ai dit, c'est parce que c'est un signe d'une fédération qui ne répond pas à leurs propres besoins. Alors c'est là le, le casse-tête qui se présente et d'après moi qui suggère que ce serait toujours difficile d'avoir une alliance qui va durer entre les deux provinces. Il peut-être des alliances à un moment ou à un autre sur une question ou à un autre, mais vous pouvez voir, avoir un rapprochement entre ces deux provinces. Je pense qu'on est toujours un peu loin de ça. J'aimerais maintenant revenir sur votre premier rapport dans lequel vous expliquez en quoi la perception des Canadiens de leur identité a évolué. La question de l'identité a toujours été très importante au Québec. De quelle manière est-ce que la perception des Québécois de leur identité a-t-elle changé selon les résultats de votre enquête? Comme euh, dans les autres provinces, l'identification avec le, le province se renforce au Québec. 
c'était toujours très fort. Ça veut dire que le Québec est la province où on était toujours le plus probable de dire qu'on se sent plutôt comme quelqu'un du, du province au lieu de, de se sentir plutôt comme un Canadien, que c'est toujours le cas, mais c'est même encore plus. Alors, euh, l'identité provinciale se renforce un peu, mais en dessous de ça, on constate qu'il y a eu des changements peut-être même plus importants, et c'est les changements entre les générations des Québécois. Alors, si on parle de, des questions de langue, et encore une fois, cette identification avec la province, c'est beaucoup plus fort parmi les Québécois qui sont comme dans leurs 40, leurs 50, soixantaines d'âge par rapport aux jeunes à peu près en dessous des années 35-30, surtout les jeunes entre 18 et 24 ans. Alors, ça veut dire que pour les jeunes, l'identification avec la langue, avec leur province, leur ethnicité est moins forte par rapport à les Québécois plus âgés. Et c'est introduit une situation que j'avais trouvée assez curieuse. C'est que ça veut dire que les jeunes Québécois se rapprochent aux jeunes des autres provinces du Canada. Alors, encore une fois, si on parle de l'importance de la langue ou de la province, il y a un écart entre les Québécois plus âgés et les autres Canadiens plus âgés. Et avec ce changement entre les générations au Québec, l'écart disparaît. Alors, c'est peut-être pas quelque chose qu'on avait prévu, mais si on parle de tous ces aspects de l'identité, les jeunes du Québec se rassemblent plus aux jeunes des autres parties du pays. D'accord. Alors, vous indiquez donc qu'il y a un changement dans la façon dont certains sujets comme la langue ou la religion sont perçus par les Québécois plus jeunes par rapport aux Québécois plus oui. âgés lorsqu'ils construisent leur identité. Mais la langue demeure toutefois un sujet très important au Québec, dans l'actualité québécoise. On parle souvent de la baisse ou de la montée du français à Montréal ou dans le reste de la province, ou de la baisse du bilinguisme dans le reste du Canada. Le Moat Center a récemment publié un rapport sur le bilinguisme basé sur les résultats de votre recherche. Qu'est-ce que ce rapport nous indique sur la situation du bilinguisme au Canada? C'était d'abord euh, encourageant. Si on parle de l'appui aux politiques, surtout la politique fédérale du bilinguisme officiel, ça veut dire d'avoir un gouvernement fédéral qui offre les services euh, également dans l'anglais et en français. Alors, l'appui partout au Canada à ce politique est très, très fort. Il n'a pas beaucoup changé depuis 15-20 ans et il y a une majorité en faveur dans toutes les, les régions du pays. Alors, je pense qu'on peut même, même dire que c'est plus euh, un enjeu. Alors, on, on a posé cette question parce qu'on vient de fêter le 50e anniversaire de la loi sur les langues officielles qui était introduite à Ottawa en 1969. Alors, euh, c'est sûr que c'était contesté à l'époque, mais maintenant, on peut voir plutôt un, un consensus partout au pays. Si on parle plutôt de l'aspect plutôt personnel, la, la façon de vivre et non pas juste la façon d'un gouvernement d'offrir de, des services aux citoyens, là, les résultats sont un peu plus euh, nuancés. D'un côté, si on demande aux Canadiens euh, Est-ce que c'est important que vos enfants apprennent à parler une deuxième langue? C'est toujours une majorité qui répond oui, mais c'est moins élevé que c'était auparavant. Mais je pense que c'est important de ne pas penser que cette 
diminution dans le nombre de Canadiens qui pensent que c'est important de parler une deuxième langue, ça veut dire quelque chose par rapport à la dualité linguistique du pays ou à l'aspect francophone du pays. D'après moi, c'est plutôt une manque d'intérêt dans les, les langues plus généralement, et je vais m'expliquer. Parce que si on pose la question à ceux qui disent que oui, je veux que mon enfant apprenne une deuxième langue, et si on, on leur demande à préciser quelle est la deuxième langue que vous voulez que vos enfants apprennent à parler, bon, les Québécois, euh, excusez-moi, les Canadiens hors du Québec vont répondre toujours une majorité très forte en disant que c'est le français. Alors, pour les Canadiens qui pensent que c'est important d'être plus qu'unilingue, ça veut dire de parler au moins une autre langue, c'est toujours le fait qu'ils tournent vers le français. Euh, ils se voient le bilinguisme comme le bilinguisme anglais-français. Alors, je ne vois pas dans ces résultats qu'on euh, est moins intéressé dans le français, l'aspect francophone du pays, mais je vois qu'il y a des Canadiens qui deviennent moins intéressés aux autres langues. Point. C'est-à-dire, ce n'est pas une question anglais-français, c'est juste une question, est-ce que ça suffit d'être unilingue? Et là, j'étais assez étonné parce qu'on peut voir de, dans le monde actuel, on, avec les accords euh, commerciaux, on parle beaucoup de l'importance d'avoir de, des liens avec les grands pays comme la Chine, comme l'Inde. On parle de la nouvelle accord commercial avec l'Union européenne. On voyage plus. Alors, j'avais pensé qu'avec le passage de temps, que les Canadiens vont être de plus en plus ouverts aux autres langues et plus, de plus en plus convaincu que ça ne suffit pas d'être unilingue. Mais ce n'est pas le cas. Même, je ne veux pas exagérer parce que, comme j'ai dit, il y a toujours une majorité des Canadiens qui disent que oui, ils veulent que leurs enfants peuvent parler plus que l'anglais s'ils sont anglophones. Euh, mais c'est moins fort que c'était. Alors, avec le passage de temps, c'est le unilinguisme qui se renforce. Et c'est, comme j'ai dit, je, dans le contexte où on est tellement connecté avec les autres pays, les autres parties du monde, je trouvais ça assez étonnant. Et c'est peut-être une réflexion vraiment de la force de l'anglais dans l'économie globale. Alors, juste pour résumer, qu qu'est-ce qu que tout ça me dit? Ça me dit que le problème, c'est ne pas convaincre les Canadiens anglophones que le français est important. C'est de leur convaincre que les langues en général sont importantes. Parce que s'ils sont convaincus que l'unilinguisme ne suffit pas, là, ils vont se tourner vers le français. Ce n'est pas le français par rapport à une autre langue qui perd l'appui, c'est le fait qu'il faut apprendre une autre langue. Alors, il faut vraiment insister que dans le monde dans lequel on vit, c'est l'unilinguisme qui ne suffit pas. Et dès que les Canadiens sont convaincus que l'unilinguisme ne suffit pas, ils vont tourner vers le français. Donc, ça nous donne une euh, très belle image de la place du français à, à l'extérieur du Québec, mais qu'en est-il de la place de l'anglais au Québec? Est-ce que les parents sont également, euh, ont également tendance à vouloir que leurs enfants apprennent l'anglais? Oui, oui, on, on parle beaucoup de la situation hors du Québec parce qu'au Québec, c'est presque unanime les, les parents qui disent que leur, leurs enfants devraient être bilingues et c'est sûr que s'ils sont francophones, ils veulent que leurs enfants apprennent à parler l'anglais. Alors, la, la situation au Québec est beaucoup moins compliquée. Pour terminer, votre projet s'appelle la Confédération de demain, donc j'aimerais 
poser une question portant un peu plus sur le futur. En observant les résultats de votre enquête et vos deux rapports, qu'est-ce que vous pouvez nous dire sur la place qu'aura le Québec ou la place que les Québécois aimeraient avoir dans la Confédération de demain? C'est sûr que la place que les Québécois aimeraient avoir, d'après moi, c'est à peu près la place que la province s'occupe. Ça veut dire qu'il veut avoir une province avec un gouvernement provincial très fort et une fédération très flexible. Alors, c'est sûr qu'on voit une population qui tourne vers leurs gouvernements provinciaux pour prendre le leadership sur les grandes questions, le secteur santé, l'immigration, etc. Plus généralement, ce que je dirais que j'ai une inquiétude parce qu'il y a un, un grand risque que les autres Canadiens prennent la mauvaise conclusion s'ils voient les résultats des élections au Québec s'ils voient un nouveau parti politique prendre pouvoir au Québec qui ne veut pas vraiment parler de la souveraineté, de la constitution, etc. C'est important que les autres Canadiens ne pensent pas qu'il y a eu une grande résolution de la question d'une place du Québec au Canada. C'est important qu'ils commencent à prendre au sérieux le besoin de, de comprendre le Québec, de comprendre les attentes des Québécois envers leur gouvernement provincial et de vraiment apprécier le fait qu'on a une fédération très diversifiée et on devrait avoir des, des politiques, des approches aux, aux grandes questions, aux grands enjeux qui peuvent répondre à, à cette diversité. Alors, euh, juste pour résumer, pour répondre à votre question, de, dans les résultats, je vois des Québécois qui apprécient le fédéralisme mais qu'ils ont des soucis et qui tournent toujours vers le gouvernement provincial et qui insistent sur un gouvernement provincial très fort. Et c'est un message que je pense que les autres Canadiens devraient entendre et recevoir. Merci beaucoup, M. Parkin. De rien, plaisir. Thank you so much to Andrew Parkin for joining me and Ricardo on the podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about the Confederation Tomorrow survey and reports, you can go to environicsinstitute.org and check out the details there. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at the podcast, send us an email. We're at policyoptions at irpp.org. And you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn under the handle at IRPP. I'm Julie Bugel. Thanks so much for tuning in.